You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, a popular staple of culture in the 1980s reduced to a simple cult following today. So whatever happened to the waterbed? Shotgun! You hear it, and you immediately know what it means. The caller is sitting up front in the car beside the driver. So where did this phrase that has become a social norm come from? Ludwig von Beethoven is considered today to be one of the greatest composers of all time. And although he died hundreds of years ago, scientists are still learning about him by studying his hair because apparently that's a thing that's still around. Isn't it Ludwig? I mean, if I'm like from Germany or something. I think it's, I think it's Ludwig, not Ludwig. Yeah, but I mean, like, you do you. You want to stick with Ludwig? Yes. I don't know. Okay. You're going to make me Google the pronunciation of Beethoven. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Dave, so there's one thing that I know to be true about you for a fact, and that is that if you could choose one thing, like if your house was on fire and your family was out, and we're assuming that your family's out, and you can choose one thing to save, that one thing that you're saving is your bed. And I want to preface this, uh, what we're about to say, by saying that this is not sponsored by Sleep Number. But Dave, why do you love your Sleep Number bed so much? You spend roughly half your life in bed. Okay, so first of all, you need to just <laughs> you just need to accept that because it's true. You're going to spend a lot of time in bed. So you can't dial it in. You can't cut corners when it comes to your bed. The Sleep Number bed has revolutionized not just my sleep, my life. I, I, I used to dread going to bed. I mean, you know this. I'm somebody who stays up as late as possible. I don't want the day to end. I still stay up too late. But now I don't dread it at all. In fact, I look forward to it. Like tonight, I'll stay up too late. It'll be like 11, 1130. But still, when I walk back there, there will be a smile on my face. You know, in another life, you'd be a salesman because as you're <laughs> speaking, I'm sitting here thinking like, I wonder how much a sleep number bed does cost. Like, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> Well, Dave, we are going to jump away from sleep number. We're going to talk about waterbeds. Have you ever had an experience with a waterbed? Did you ever know anyone who had one? I didn't. I knew a few people that have had them, and maybe you'll talk about this, but I haven't seen or heard of a waterbed in a long time. I used to think that only rich people had them. Well, like and that's what was thing. interesting to me about this was the fact that they were such this like big thing, especially in the 80s, and you saw them on TV, and like people in shows had them and everything, and then all of a sudden, it's just like they completely vanished. Uh, like no one has waterbeds anymore. So I did a little bit of research about the history of the waterbed, and waterbeds, they've, they actually date all the way back to 3600 BC, when the Persians would fill mattresses, made of goat skin with water and then warm them in the sun. But the modern concept of the waterbed was actually first invented in the 1960s by a design student named Charles Hall. It all started when Hall was studying at San Francisco State University and was given an assignment to design a chair using a new material. 
Hall decided to use vinyl, which was relatively new material at the time. And in the process of experimenting with it, he came up with the idea of a bed filled with water. Now, there were some missteps along the way, Dave, like when Hall first tried to use 3,000 pounds of cornstarch, which rotted, and then he literally tried to use jello to fill up the bed, and that had a similar disastrous result as well. But Hall's invention quickly caught the attention of Dr. Robert Brown, a rheumatologist who saw the potential benefits of a bed that could conform to the shape of the body and reduce pressure on joints. Brown began to work with Hall to refine the design, and in 1971, they founded the company Interspace Environments to manufacture and sell waterbeds. Hall began selling the waterbed prototype that he named the Pleasure Pit. Gross. (laughs) So, Dave, at first, waterbeds were primarily marketed to people with medical conditions like arthritis or back pain, but it did not take long for the general public to catch on to the comfort and novelty of sleeping on a waterbed. By the late 1970s, waterbeds had become a mainstream product and were being sold in department stores and furniture showrooms all over the country. In the 1980s, the popularity of waterbeds reached their peak, and they became a symbol of the free-spirited, counterculture lifestyle that was popular at the time. Movies and television shows often featured characters who slept on waterbeds, and they were often associated with the swinging bachelor pad aesthetic. Advertisers leaned into this with ads that read like, Two things are better on a waterbed, and one of them is sleep. And she'll admire you for your car. She'll respect you for your position. She'll love you for your waterbed. What's the other thing? <laughs> well, we're a family show, Dave. Oh, oh. <laughs> so in a way, the bed oh, took that. on this. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get it. In a way, the waterbed took on this super legendary status as kind of like a status symbol in a way. And in 1984, waterbeds were a $2 billion business. And then in 1987, 22% of all mattress sales in the United States were waterbeds. But the popularity of waterbeds began to decline in the 1990s as consumers became more concerned, one, about the environmental impact of plastic materials used in the beds, as well as the maintenance required to keep them in good condition. As it turns out, Dave, waterbeds are sort of a pain in the neck to maintain. You have to drain them and then refill them. And as you would imagine, sometimes they did leak, creating serious problems in the home. As a result, many manufacturers began to produce like hybrid waterbeds that combine the benefits of a water-filled core with the support of a traditional mattress material like foam or springs. So today, waterbeds, yeah, they're still available, but they are no longer as popular as they once were. However, many people who have slept on waterbeds continue to sing their praises, citing the unparalleled comfort and support that they provide. And while maybe that's just a nostalgia thing, there is something like a cult following today for waterbeds. And some manufacturers continue to innovate and experiment with new materials and designs to try to keep the waterbed relevant in the modern marketplace. So from its humble origins as a design student's experiment, to its peak as a cultural icon, and finally to its current status as a niche product with a loyal following, waterbeds have quite the journey. So Dave, I ask you, is there any hope for a waterbed resurrection in our country? Uh, Not for me. Did you hear my sleep number (laughs) open? Now, I thought the waterbed was going to be on this list. This is the 25 most nostalgic, popular, and useless novelty items ever. Because it is kind of like a novelty thing. It didn't right. make the list, but things that did make the list 
uh, Big Mouth Billy Bass. I'm sure you've seen oh. this. The fish that's on the yes. wall. You push the button. Yes. Sea monkeys. Yeah. I mean, I remember a lot of people having sea monkeys. They did. They did. And the number one thing, a pet rock. So those rocks that had eyes on them, blue <laughs> on. Jay, many themes come up on the show. And one that comes up somewhat frequently, because we're both pretty fascinated by it, is nature versus nurture. Like, do you become who you are because of how you were raised, or is who you are just the end result of how you were always going to turn out from birth? Pretty compelling arguments can be made on both sides of the aisle, but there's another part of it that we just pick up from observing the world around us, and those are social norms. These are the kinds of things that we all just somehow know about. Whether we were born a Silver Spoon Trust Fund kid or a kid who basically had to raise themselves. But Jay, while we could have a healthy debate on the most important social norm, I think I fall in the camp of calling shotgun when you're about to enter a vehicle. Now here's what's interesting about you and I. We have such a great relationship. (laughs) And if you listen to the show, hopefully you can tell we just, Jay and I obviously have known each other a long time. I love calling shotgun. I don't think I've ever tried to get into a car without calling shotgun. I don't think I've ever heard you do it. Yeah, well, first of all, I thought you were going to lead into something because you did this whole monologue on nature versus nurture. I thought you were going to be like talking about IQ or something, but then you're talking about <laughs> calling shotgun. <laughs> I don't know. I just, uh, it's sitting in the front seat's not that important to me, <laughs> I guess. It's, it's clearly very important to you. I'm bummed if I'm not in the front what seat. What is it? Is it like you get to control the music up there? Is it like no, you get there's to just sort the views of give better, the direction? There's more room. There's, just, it's, there's an endless list of things that are better in the front. But Jay, at least in the United States, the term I call shotgun is widely understood. When said, the shotgun caller claims the shotgun seat in the car, meaning the front non-driver seat. While always important to do when not driving, if you ask me, not you... Jay, it is crucial to do this when taking a long trip with multiple passengers, as it secures the most desirable riding situation. So where did this phrase that we all just somehow know come from? Well, if you assumed the Old West, well, kinda. In the late 1800s, a stagecoach driver would typically assign the seat beside him to a weapon-carrying friend who could ward off any thieves or bandits that they may encounter along the way. These passengers typically carried shotguns, so naturally, that's where the name came from, right? Well, still, partly right. There are actually no records that exist of uses of the phrase back in the old Western days. It wasn't until movies and television shows started to tell stories from the old West that the phrase started showing up. In fact, one of the first recorded mentions came in 1921. In the short story, The Fighting Fool, author Dane Coolidge said that a character was riding shotgun. It first appeared in film in 1939 in a, who else, Mr. Shotgun himself, John Wayne movie called Stagecoach. Although the rules may vary, Jay, the commonly accepted rules of shotgun are as follows. Calling shotgun only counts when you're outside and can physically see the vehicle. All riders must be present and clearly hear you say it. If you say it at the same time and you can't come to an agreement, rock, paper, scissors, best two out of three, is the deciding factor. Now, there are also times when you can't say shotgun, Jay. Like, for example, if you were riding with me and my wife, you can't say shotgun and then force her to sit in the back seat. (laughs) I thought rules were rules. 
<laughs> I'd love to see you. Are we what a, a time for you to pull it out for the first time? Are we a country, are we a country of the rule of law or are we not? <laughs> Dave, uh, what is your go-to dad joke? Like if someone told you to tell a dad joke, which one do you have in the chamber? So mine's more situational. Like somebody has to do something that would trigger it. Okay, so like for example, let's say that you and I are hanging out, okay, and ask me if I know what time it is. Hey, Dave, do you know what time it is? Yeah, it's time for you to buy a watch. (laughs) (laughs) How many times approximately would you say you (laughs) drop that joke in a week? In a week? Yeah, This may surprise you, probably two to three. I mean, that's a lot <laughs> to do it per week. Well, here's my go-to dad joke. Hey, Dave, what, uh, what was Beethoven's favorite fruit? I don't know. Banana-na. <laughs> that's that's awful. <laughs> that's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's, that's terrible. I mean, but that's why it's a good dad joke, because yeah, sure. it's terrible. Yeah, sure. So we're talking Beethoven, um, uh, not the dog. You know, and some mo- some weird movie that you mentioned that you used to watch about Beethoven yes. or something. So when I was in, in elementary school uh, in our music class, we used to watch this incredible movie called Beethoven Lives Upstairs, and it was about this little boy who lived in some like boarding house, and Beethoven lived in his attic, um, like the Beethoven, the Beethoven. Yeah, we watched it. It was one of those like if you had a sub, you had a substitute teacher, they put it in. <laughs> so we watched it like a hundred. They wheel times. in the TV from the hall yeah, exactly. and type thing. That, that's Beethoven lives upstairs. Was he like a ghost or something, or was it like now, I think literal he was Beethoven? The real Beethoven. There was also one about Bach. It was called like Bach lives, lives upstairs. <laughs> no, it was yeah, yeah. It was just all about guys living in attics. Well, we're going to talk about Beethoven, and uh, although Ludwig von Beethoven is now, of course, considered one of the greatest composers of all time. His journey, Dave, was not without some serious challenges along the way. Throughout his life, Beethoven struggled with many health problems, uh, including liver disease, stomach pains, mental illness, and most famously, hearing loss that began in his 20s. And although he did try to treat these ailments, it was mostly by like putting leeches on his body, so he didn't really get anywhere with that. Dave, when Beethoven died on March 27th, 1827, at the age of 56, he had a very specific request, leaving behind a note asking his doctor that his ailments be studied. So, quote, as far as possible, at least the world will be reconciled to me after my death. As it so happens, several strands of Beethoven's hair actually exist in the modern world and have been passed down to museums and private collections. And now, Dave, researchers are attempting to do exactly what Beethoven wanted in that note, study him. In a paper published in Current Biology in March of 2023, scientists have built a DNA picture of Beethoven, one that can tell us some interesting details about his life, but also raises some questions about studying the past through genetic material. And while scientists can't really necessarily nail down a definitive cause for Beethoven's hearing loss through the hair samples, they were able to identify a number of significant genetic risk factors for liver disease as well as hepatitis B. We do know that Beethoven consumed a lot of alcohol from even his own writings, but also from the writings of others. For example, Dave, one of his close friends once wrote that Beethoven had a liter of wine with lunch every day. (laughs) 
But this, <laughs> but this information can help us paint this perfect storm of what likely ended Beethoven's life. But even past that, Dave, researchers compared Beethoven's genetic profile to his living relatives in Belgium and found something sort of shocking. While some of the relatives shared a parental ancestor, there was no match for the Y chromosome in Beethoven's hair samples. This suggests that at some point in his family tree on his father's side, there was an extramarital affair that resulted in the birth of a child. And herein, Dave, lies the problem. Although Beethoven specifically sort of requested that his genetic material be studied to determine what was causing his pain and hearing loss, this is really not a finding that he was even asking for, right? Studying the past through genetic material raises some important ethical questions about consent and privacy here, but on the other hand, studying Beethoven in this particular way can produce some really accurate and really reliable information about his life in this really unique way. I mean, it's sort of like stepping into a time machine. For example, Dave, the hearing loss question is still unanswered. DNA can show us that the nature part of the equation, but it's lacking information on the nurture side. Due to this, more research is required to further investigate that. But overall, I find this type of research so fascinating because it can paint such a new picture of a historical figure that was never written down. And I would imagine that using DNA to study the past is only just beginning. Beethoven Lives Upstairs is a 1992 HBO original historical fiction film produced and directed by David Devine. Based on a popular children's audio recording, it's about uh, a boy named Christoph who develops a friendship with, fr- with composer Ludwig von Beethoven. How do you think Beethoven would react to knowing this movie existed, you know, hundreds of years after After what death? you just said? <laughs> if he, especially if he just had lunch and he was a little soft, <laughs> would not be happy. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Okay, hold on. I'm going to Google it. Ludwig von, von Beethoven. How to say Ludwig von Beethoven. The name of this composer of classical music. This is a minute long. Like, just tell me. It's Ludwig. It is normally pronounced as Ludwig von Beethoven. I hear you. It is usually pronounced as Ludwig von Beethoven. <laughs> you may say it like that. Ludwig. On the head of Beethoven. Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs>